everybody. Welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life and what next steps do you want to take to get there. I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 94. We've got another great one lined up. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm glad you're here. The podcast is growing rapidly and we have a lot of brand new listeners, so welcome to the room. And for those who have been here since the beginning, welcome back. Thank you for listening and sharing and for everybody. If you like what you hear, subscribe and follow the show so you do not miss an episode. And also follow us on Instagram. That's where everything is happening, at I Dare You Pod. There you can connect with me and also valuable information you can put into practice right away. And video snippets of all of our interviews, including this one. Our guest is none other than Jason Borbe. He is a full-time self-represented artist, lives in Victor, Idaho, which is about an hour away from me here in Idaho Falls, Idaho. One of the most creative guys you're ever going to meet, and we can learn a lot from Borbe, as you'll hear in just a moment. Time Out New York Magazine named Borbe their most creative New Yorker. He's also written about contemporary art business as a contributor for Forbes. Since relocating to Teton Valley, Idaho, Borbe has shown in a large-scale, self-curated solo exhibition of his Western neon paintings, stunning, at the Art Association of Jackson Hole. Now, his life story, it was profiled in New York Lifestyles magazine. And just last year, Borbe opened Borbe Studios and Gallery in Victor, Idaho, and a really cool collaboration with Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. And that was showcased on Fox, NBC, CBS, and The Street. So what can you expect to learn from this interview? You're going to learn about how career paths, they zig and they zag, and that might be the whole point because it's always preparing you for something next. And then you're also going to hear about how you can turn your passion projects into something a whole lot more. So now with that as a setup, everybody, Borbay is here from Victor, Idaho on the I Dare You podcast. Let's bring him in. Here, everybody, on episode 94 is Jason Borbay. Jason, welcome to the podcast, and it's really good having you here. Yeah, thank you, Darren. Uh, very excited to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. All right, so I've been waiting for this conversation. We have known each other for maybe just a couple of years, but we've never really had a chance to go deep into your background, and and I can't wait to ask you just a whole bunch of questions about where you've been and where you're going. Are you ready for this? Absolutely. Fire away. <laughs> Uh, your your name, uh, Jason, but last night, you mean your brand is really Borbet, uh, much like Prince or Madonna. When you have one name, you, that that's saying something. And so you have really established yourself very quickly in the art world. And congratulations to you on your success so far. But to how did you how did you land in this current vocation? In where are you putting your time and talents? All right. Uh, you know, I'll take it from the top. I know it sounds like I'm going way too far back, but I'll ramp it up quickly. So uh, I was born in 1980 on Long Island. Uh, my dad was a teacher and a track coach. My mom was an art school dropout who became a nurse. And from the age of two, uh, she let me paint a wooden bunny for Easter and I became hooked with painting. So I always did art. Um, in ninth grade, I walked into the 10 to 12 building and, and somehow talked my way into AP art. So I was doing college level art when I was 12 and I was four, seven, um, <laughs> pursued that through high school. I had an amazing teacher. Her name was uh, Mrs. Hines. She got married. She's Mrs. Livesey now. Um, and she just basically encouraged us and said that, you know, art can be a profession. She brought in admissions officers from the best art schools in the country. Um, but at the time I was running, I wanted to run D1. So I accepted a scholarship to Boston University, got a bachelor of fine arts and graphic design with concentrations in advertising and art history. Um, 
Concurrently, I was working as a designer at the Beacon Hill Times in a graphic design job. Then after college, I was going to move to Los Angeles to become an actor with a slam poet I had become familiar with on the internet. And I randomly right. got onto a reality TV show audition. I crashed it in Faneuil Hall, a place called The Rack. Got on reality TV, spent six months in East Boston doing that, moved to New York City, uh, did a year of stand-up comedy, randomly got an interview, ended up spending just under two years at the Trump Organization working as a legal slash development associate. Is that right? And, yeah. And then uh, we worked on Trump Vegas, Trump Chicago, half billion dollar construction loans, licensing deals. Uh, from there, I went on to become a recruiter. So I was uh, placing creative talent in ad agencies and consumer brands. Then I basically placed myself as a PR coordinator slash recruiter at a front-end design development ad agency, splitting my time between Tribeca and Stockholm, uh, was promoted to business director, um, was there for just under two years. Then I found myself in Maui painting on the beach with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Erin, um, realized the world didn't need another guy selling ads. So I gave six <laughs> weeks notice, and July 2nd of 2009, which is my Independence Day, I became a full-time artist. Uh, which has been the case. I've worked for home uh, for about 13 years. And last year I opened up Borbay Studios and Gallery in downtown Victor Island. Wow. All right. Well, you that was that was a lot in about two and a half minutes. Well done. So here's what I heard in that description, though. Seems like you have a pattern or had a lot of, of breaking in and just doing things that you wanted to do and not really asking for a lot of permission. It is Is that fair? And when you look back on what you just described to me? hundred percent. And, you know, I, I always adhered to the two year principle, um, which was if you stay in any job for two years, it means you're good enough to stay there. And then you face the old golden handcuffs, which I didn't want to do. Um, but I often speak to you. Um, I'm, I'm the beneficiary of an amazing mentor and uh, I mentor a lot of young people. And, you know, I tell them, I'm like, look, if you're going to go to college and you're an artist, go get a business degree. Don't get an art degree. Uh, if you know you want to do art, skip it take a job, be a paralegal, work in a uh, business, learn about business, accounting, legal, financial, planning, all these things are critical because at the end of the day, whether you're making paper clips or you're making paintings, you're a business and you have to run it as such. Hmm. Well, that's really good advice. I mean, I, I could not agree more. I, my background is in liberal arts and I, I tell uh, young people all the time and other people, I wish I would have gotten more finance training, more classes in finance it's the language of business. And when you understand finance, and it's nothing to be intimidated about, uh, Borbe, it's not, nothing to be intimidated about. You 100%. can you can do it. But once you do it, you now have such command and power and insights. And yeah, you agree? Absolutely. And you know, there's a lot, you know, in creativity, right brain, left brain. The reality is you need both to be clicking on all cylinders if you want to be a business. Some people can't. I totally understand that. But in my industry, galleries take 50% of what you create. So if you can push yourself out of your comfort zone, you're talking about retaining 50% of your earning power. Well, okay. I want to go back to that 2000. First off, before I go there though, you mentioned you're, you're the beneficiary of an amazing mentor. Was that Mrs. Hines or someone else? Well, so she has always been a great mentor and just someone who you know said, hey, go into the world and be a creative. You can do it. Um, but there was a gentleman, his name is Robert, and he is from Long Island originally, but currently lives in Montreal. He came to one of my art shows in 2013, uh, flew in just for the show, bought a painting off the wall, just said, I, I love your work. I flew in for this. I have to go home. If you'd like, come visit me in Montreal. So a week later, I booked a ticket. My wife, who was pregnant with our first child, uh, we flew to Montreal. 
He said, hey, if you go around and do presentations about your business uh, for the next couple of years, send me the videos. I'll take you up to meet my peer investment group, which is this group called Tiger 21. So yeah. I did that in Montreal and Toronto. And that moment literally changed my career. And ever since there's anything I have a question about, you know, business, creativity, uh, marketing, PR, anything, I call him up and he gives me great advice. Wow. When you have a mentor in your life, what a tremendous advantage you have and what a blessing it is for you to have that, Jason. But for everyone who's listening, do you have that type of a mentor? And I know it's not not easy just snapping your fingers. What advice would you have for someone who may be thinking about your story and saying, holy smokes, if only I had a mentor like that? Great question. I mean, you know, you can't just go up to someone and say, be my mentor. You know, <laughs> mentorship is this unique bond between two people where you know, someone who's more accomplished than you, that has more experience than you, recognizes something in you and wants to help you because we've, you know, everybody goes through mistakes and a mentor helps you avoid mistakes before you make them. Uh, but the key is for me, that moment was when he invited us to Montreal, you know, we're a young couple, we're pregnant, but I said, no way, I'm not going to skip out on this. So two weeks later, we fly up there. So basically, you know, when I'm looking to help someone and I want to give them advice and I say, listen, you know, come by my gallery sometime. We'll sit down. We'll talk about your business strategy. When someone offers you something, you follow up on it immediately with action. And that's the yeah. best way to foster a mentorship. There are oftentimes when we are met with an opportunity and we can sometimes overthink things. One of those things, you know, if someone offers you something that is great, take it, go in the extra mile to meet with someone and listen and learn. Because if you mm -hmm. can avoid a mistake on your journey, you're going to step up two levels and it's huge. The one thing I'll, I'll make a mention to everyone who's listening, who is in a leadership role, we, we all have an opportunity now to help someone else step up. And um, this story is reminding me of some of the people that I'm aware of that I could easily reach out and, and take a more proactive way and try to help them get to where they want to go. So I would just ask everyone who's listening, think about maybe one or two people in your in your community, people you know, people at work, younger folks, you, you know, you, you're spotting them. You know there's a lot of potential there, but maybe they don't know how great they can be. And sometimes all it takes, just like Robert in Montreal, Jason, we could help a lot of people, couldn't we? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, you know, you want to recognize greatness in someone. And a lot of times someone just needs a, a gentle shove. And yeah. people are afraid of living their passion. They're afraid of success. Like I tell people all the time, you know, it's easy to prepare for failure. You know, if you do something, you put yourself out there, the likelihood is you're going to fail. But what happens if you succeed? How do you handle success? And that's what people need to be prepared for. So if I'm right, in 2009, Jason, you were named the most creative New Yorker by Time Out New York. You had a good thing going here. And yes. then, then Tetons, the Tetons. How did you get to Victor, Idaho, of all places? Well... Uh, you know, I had this buddy, Matt, who I played hockey with in Central Park, and he moved to Connecticut, then to Boston. And throughout that period of time, he wanted to amass an art collection, but he really hadn't at that point connected with my work, which was totally fine. So I, I, I helped broker deals with artists because they needed the help and uh, helped them build a collection. And finally, he calls me up one day, and this is in 2015, and he says, hey, I know what I want you to paint. He had just bought a place in Teton Village. So he flew me out. We did a whole kind of circuit. I almost killed myself. I flipped the sled going 60 miles an hour. So uh, <laughs> fortunately, I was okay. Uh, yeah. but I ended up painting the Mormon row barn with the cowboy bar neon on it. 
with the Tetons in the back. It was, it was, it was really fun. And I just remember calling my wife and saying, I don't know how or when, but we're going to come back. So then fast forward a little bit, a couple of months, I went up and did those presentations in Montreal, Toronto. And I met a gentleman named Peter who um, he owns and operates the Grand Isle Resort in uh, Exuma. And so he invited me to come down and build a residency. So at this time we have two young daughters. We went there. And when I met Aaron, I told her, I was like, let's get married. Let's have kids. You're going to drag my cold dead corpse out of Manhattan. I came back from Exuma. <laughs> I'm like, let's hit the road. So we were going to just go nomadic, move to Europe, called up Matt, rented his place in Teton Village for three months, found Teton Valley, moved in March of 16, been in the same place ever since. Wow. So was it a, was it the opportunity or was it, did you fall in love with the, with the area or a little of both? What was it? I consider myself a spiritual person. And when I was in New York, I always said, if you put a bag over my head and flew me around the world, I could sense when we were over New York, because there's an energy to it. Yeah. And the only time I ever felt that in my whole life outside of New York city was in the Tetons. And I think it's literally the composite of the mountains, the ground, the energy, but what kept us here is the people unbelievable yeah. incredible people we have extended our family by hundreds of people by living here it's it's a miraculous place all right so you really made an impact on the area so i was reading an article about you in teton valley magazine and really a wonderful article about how you you give back to the community i mean you're not you're not just um you know hanging back resting on your laurels where where, where did this commitment to others and trying to give back where, where did that start for you why are you doing it well i mean uh it started with my parents and my brothers, and we just had a very loving family and my amazing wife and my amazing kids. And, you know, I just think that, you know, your community is a treasure and people look out for each other. So, you know, I announced the 4th of July parade. I host Seniors West of the Teton Bingo. Um, <laughs> I, I auction your charity events. So, you know, just I'm a loud guy who doesn't mind talking in front of people. So if I can help out in any way, I'd love to. And Literally, you know, the best people, and I feel that this community is full of the best people, they would take their shirt off their back for you. And so anything I can do to contribute to that, it's just my humble contribution. Yeah. So for everyone listening, we have listeners all over the world. So let me just level set here. I am in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which is on the eastern part of the state. Victor, Idaho is about 75 minutes, um, what, east, I guess, toward yes. the Tetons. And that, that's where Borbe uh, lives and, and resides. And then the Tetons, or, or Jackson, is about another 25 minutes from Victor. So it's, it's, it's just a gem. It's a beautiful area. Maybe I shouldn't say this uh, because we don't want anyone else to move in. <laughs> so, I mean, we, I live in Victor, Montana. And uh, yeah, that's all you need. <laughs> it's right. No, I know that's, uh, that was another thing I was sensitive about, too. Because, you know, moving in here, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of tradition and I didn't want to come in here and change things. I just wanted sure. to try to just be a good flavor and, and mesh with the community. And, you know, like coming from New York, I was a little concerned that, you know, people were going to be like, Oh no, here's another jerk from New York. But uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's been wonderful. And I think, you know, the, the more love you put in, the more you get back. And that's been good advice. Good advice. Good advice. All right. So when during COVID, you know what I did, uh, Jason? I I took a improv class, and one Excellent. of my one of the secrets that I haven't well, I haven't told many people. I'm tell. I guess I'm telling everybody now. I've always wanted to try stand up. I've always wanted to try it. Why? Because it is to me. It is probably the. I'm imagining it to be the most scary situation. Seven minute set, whatever you got. It just feels like. 
the ultimate in fear for me and which is why I'm attracted to it. So I took an improv class at Second City in Chicago and got me way out of my comfort zone. I was interacting with a lot of really sharp people, which was also fun. But I want to hear about your experience. You mentioned it, that you were, you did stand up in New York. And That's what, what was that like? Am I, am I right? It's, it's, it's a lot of fear or no, you, you love it. Uh, well, you know, it's abjectly terrifying. A hundred percent. I didn't have money to take acting lessons and I was in the Upper East Side and now Upper East Side sounds highfalutin, but you know, the Upper East Side, anything East of Third Avenue was all college kids because it was cheaper apartments. Uh. I was thinking about doing it. And then one day I was coming back from a run and I ran into Woody Allen on the median of Park Avenue. And I look <laughs> at this guy and I'm like, if he could do stand-up comedy, I could do stand-up comedy. So I sign up my first ever show. I'm at Stand Up New York in the Upper West Side. And I don't know how this happened. I ended up on a set with Jim Norton, who's like a major comedian. Oh, yeah. I had a friend of mine who was berating the host. So I was supposed to do seven minutes. They left me up there for 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, you know, just cold sweat. Just the lights feel like they're glaring. Sometimes you just black out. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what, uh, you know, people say, you know, Toastmasters and stuff, but I applaud you because, first of all, Second City is amazing. Two, going up and putting yourself out there and stand up or improv is a beautiful way for you to feel really comfortable doing anything else. I mean, you could put me in front of the entire town and I can announce a parade and not get nervous at all. I could do Christmas Carol. I could do the Nutcracker. It doesn't matter. Any of that stuff is easy but i've definitely i've had beer bottles thrown at my head i've been booed off stage um <laughs> i very rarely brought down the house but you know there's um i do believe that in terms of a, a community experience to host open mic nights and to go and put yourself out there is brilliant and you never know i mean you've got a great voice a great presence and i i could see you being a great comic well, you know what? I may have to. I'm well. You know what? Tell you what. If I decide to go to New York, will you travel with me and just kind of push me out on stage and let's just see what happens? I I know we'll we'll go to New York Comedy Club. There's a side room. The hardest thing is though you're performing in front of other comedians. You uh -oh. could be slaying it, and they're taking notes to look up. And this is the ultimate compliment. That's funny. <laughs> that means you kill. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to write that down for that'll be a follow up for us. Uh, Jason, let's talk about your art because I can remember the first time I saw your art, I stopped. I mean, I, I was, I was walking down the street and I stopped and I stared at, and I, and I said, I have got to learn more about whoever did this. And it was, it was you obviously, but your work is really cool in that it, and I'm not going to do this justice. I'm just talking as a layperson, but the way that you use neon throughout your work, and also you also do collage type work. So how would how do you describe your work? I, I know that for those who are, this is a podcast, obviously. So describe it if you can. So you know, I uh, because I have a graphic design background, and uh, I studied under professors who work directly with Paul Rand, who's the contemporary godfather of branding. You know, I've always been very attracted to signage, and I've always been attracted to low light. So neon has always been a, a kind of perfect meld, and. You know, neon, what it does to a place, it just activates a space. So I just, I love it. Um, so I was very drawn to that and collage painting portraits. But I would say it's kind of impressionist realism in so much that it's an impression of realism. So I've done a, I did a five by five foot painting of Radio City. Now, if you look yeah. at it, you would swear 
like, oh, is that a photograph? But then if you look at it next to an actual photo of Radio City, it's completely different. It's my impression of what things look like realistically. Also, I'm a Virgo, so I'm extremely anal, and I paint with very small brushes. So I love crisp lines, crisp colors, and everything has to be very high fidelity. By the way, that Radio City, that's the one. That's the one I saw. I, I just stopped. And then, and there's so many different, where would, where would someone go right now, uh, Jason, to see some of this work that you have, your gallery? So um, my gallery, uh, Borbay Studios and Gallery is located at 10 South Main Street, Suite 203 in downtown Victor, Idaho, by the traffic light, which by the way, when I moved here, I got a Teton Valley News and the police blotter, the first item said, the traffic light is out. Took a photo, sent it to my boys in New York. They're like, I don't understand what this means. I was like, we don't really have one horse towns anymore, but we have a one light town. So yeah. right across from Victor Valley Market. And, um, you know, if anyone ever wants to set an appointment, they could send me a text or an email and happy to do it. Well, okay. So I'm going on your Instagram page, by the way, a great follow. And uh, if you're not following him yet, you should. There you're going to see also some of his artwork. I've got to follow up on a couple of pieces and get the inspiration behind it. Number one is the Masters. And then I want to talk to you about Mona Lisa. So tell me about the Masters. Okay. So um, having moved here, I was never a golf fan. I would go on bachelor parties, slam beers, hit a 13 on each of the first three holes and just golf cart around. Uh, But when I moved here, um, I got involved with golf and I, I just became smitten i love the game i love the game of golf uh the club is just they're amazing they fostered this and all the pros and so i just got really into it and so again this is a COVID inspired project so for the first time ever they postponed the masters in 2020 and they ended up doing it in the fall and i'm like this is momentous and at the time i was also live streaming from the studio literally saying watch paint dry people would sit there and watch me for five hours painting it's the most boring thing in the world because i'm real slow (laughs) And so I decided I was going to paint Golden Bell, which is part of Eight Man Corner, live during the Masters, streaming on Facebook while the Masters was going. And I set a parameter. I start when the first tee shot goes and I finish when the last putt drops. So I did that. I'm doing a 20-year Guggenheim series. So I decided I'm going to do every green for 18 years of Augusta during during the Masters. So Mm. I just finished the fourth year and I have 14 years to go. Cool. See, I didn't know that. I did. I missed that part of that story. I did not know that was your plan for this. That is cool. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, when I first did my first long-term series, uh, the Guggenheim, my first professional sale was in 2009 of the Guggenheim. And I wanted to paint it again the next year. So I decided to do it for 20 years, basically for two reasons. One, to be a litmus test of my stylistic evolution. And two, as a personal commitment to myself to say, hey, it's going to get hard. But in 20 years, I'm still going to be painting. And so mm-hmm. I'm halfway through number 15, have five years left to go in that series. Your work, as I'm scanning the Instagram pages right here, as I'm looking at this, just stunning. But where do you go for inspiration? Um, and let me see if I can ask a sharper question. But where do you go just to get quiet and to, and to, and to recharge and to come up with some of these ideas? What practices do you follow? Or what do you do to stay mentally sharp and, and motivated? Well, I, I would say probably I'm um, just very blessed in that regard because I will never live long enough to paint the stuff that I already want to paint. Really? And, uh, you know, when I started full-time art, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to paint basically nine to five, five days a week, try to take weekends off because, you know, a lot of times you get caught up in it and you want to start painting and having cocktails and, you know, start at like six and paint till four in the morning. But I wanted it to be regular. 
Um, and then I've always adhered to Chuck Close's phrase, which is ins inspiration is for amateurs. You know, I don't have to be inspired. I work. If I'm working on a painting and I'm having a tough time for it, I work. And that's the only way to keep it as a profession versus a hobby. So I just go in. And when I have a good idea, the first thing I do is try to forget it immediately. And the best ideas always rise to the top. So if, if it's great, it will come it will come back again and I will do it at some point. Is that right? That That's how you do it? Yeah, there's usually about a six-year lag between a good idea and execution. Oh, that's so cool. Well, that reminds me of the whole adage of what comes first, motivation or action. And one thing that I've observed in, uh, in people, and I'm guilty of it um, as well, but I'm waiting to get motivated, right? I'm just waiting. Like if I'm going to go, uh, if I'm going to get into running, I'll go buy some shoes and then I'll buy some shorts. I'll get a t-shirt. I'm getting prepped, getting prepared yes. as opposed to, man, if I would just start running, I would, and that happens to me when I start, I immediately become even more motivated to keep going. How about, how about for you and your world? That's what I'm hearing a little bit. Right. Um, you know, running in college and high school was tremendous for discipline. We'd run a hundred miles a week. And, you know, this is, this, this adage applies to uh, exercise, to life. The most difficult thing is the first step out the door. So, you know, if you're like, oh, you're waffling and you're just sitting on your phone and you're reading whatever, like I just put everything down, I get up, I grab a paintbrush and I go to work. And then huh. all of a sudden, eight hours goes by. T painting is time travel. I don't have to meditate because I meditate while I paint. And so I spend so much time sifting through my my past, my future, my present when I'm painting that, you know, when I'm done, it's like I close the door and then I come home and be a present dad, be a present husband. That's a blessing. I mean, I think that's that's something when you find that, that's a pretty good sign that you're in the right area that you should be spending your vocation. Now, would you agree with that? That's my own opinion. I, I couldn't agree with it more. You know, I've, I've been in jobs and in school. I didn't like being a student. I'll admit that. I, you know, yeah. I would never go back to school for anything, uh, you know, but I remember just watching the clock. Yes. And just yes. agonizing over it. And you know, and I think like just in terms of personal satisfaction, but also personal health, stress is the biggest killer. Stress brings on everything. If you could find a job, a vocation, a passion, where not only does it make you not stressed, but it makes time fly by in the best way, then you have won. Okay. Uh, 2009, Independence Day, July 2nd, correct? Correct. I'm telling you right now, if I were your dad, I would have told you, what are you doing? Don't do it don't do it. Stay safe. I mean, what went into that decision? And would you have done anything differently looking back on it now? If it were July 1st, 2009, would you do it again or would you have changed anything? Well, okay. First, yes. Every time I left a stable job, with great, great health insurance and a great salary, my parents thought I was crazy because, you know, <laughs> in a generational gap, you know, um, in their generation, you get a job, you stay there forever. In our generation, jobs really don't have a premium for people. They have a premium for profit and shareholders. So yeah. everyone is expendable. It's just a business. Um, but really, I had a life plan. My life plan was to be an advertising executive till I was 40, retire a millionaire and become a painter and travel the world. Um, when I was 26, I met an amazing woman, my wife, Erin. Um, and she encouraged me. She said, look, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I want to paint. She's like, so you should paint. I was on partner track. I was probably number three or four in the hierarchy of this ad agency. And when I gave notice, my CEO was like, are you serious? And I was like, no, yeah, I'm, 
I'm going to go do this. So I wouldn't change anything. I would do wow. it July 2nd of 2009, all the experience I had before that I'm so grateful for, because without that experience, I don't think I could have run this as a proper business. So, um, you know, people always say like, my kids were like, oh, would you go back to like being 10 again or whatever? I was like, no, first of all, because I wouldn't be your dad. And second of all, like, I'm very grateful, you know, mistakes and all for where I am. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. When I think about my career path in my 20s, it was, uh, you could describe it as a lot of hours, just the grind and the hustle. And I look back on it now and I would, I would say, I would not have changed a thing. Was it a huge sacrifice? Absolutely. And that sacrifice, that hustle paid off exponentially in my 40s and in my 50s. My point is you learn so much from these early roles and these early jobs. And when you can approach it that way, as every job, it's not, no, no job is perfect. No job is perfect, but you're going to learn so much from the good and the bad. It, it pays off in so many ways in the future. And it sounds like for you, it sets you up for making that big leap. I would love your advice to someone who's listening who may be in a career who they, they know they want to break loose sometime, passion project or full time. Uh, give them a little advice about their current job and why they should uh, maybe have a different mindset on it. The the key is to be a great hire in no matter what you're doing. When I was a kid, I raked baseball fields. I raked them the best I could. I worked at a retail running shoe store. I would vacuum every single day, make sure the stock was perfect, make sure the drawer was balanced, what, you know, wash the windows. No matter what you do, if you're excellent at what you do, I don't care if you're flipping burgers. I don't care if you're parking cars. I don't care if you're an attorney, whatever you do, excellent people find a way to continue to rise. And be excellent at what you do when you get complacent and you get sour in your mood and you're not pleasant to be around. So whatever yeah. you do, do it to the best of your ability and people will recognize that. And every time when I worked in recruiting, the best hire is someone that's going to be outstanding for two or three years and then you're going to lose them because they're going to go on to bigger and better things. And then you're putting better people in the world, better workers in the world. So just be excellent. That's great. Hey, uh, I got to ask about Mona Lisa. Um, I just learned, by the way, I was reading about Mona Lisa and the history of Mona Lisa and about how, uh, from what I read, that she did not even ever see the painting of herself. Then I saw your, you are doing a work here. You're doing Mona Lisa with neon. Tell me, tell me the inspiration of that. So, uh, yeah, so I was commissioned to do American Gothic, which is the guy with the pitchfork and which actually was the uh, Grant Woods dentist. And that guy looks like a scary dentist. <laughs> and it was Zont, and they were playing a couple, but they were just posing. Uh, I did it on commission. I did it as Indiana. I found so inspired that I was like, I'm going to start tackling masterpieces. So the next up was the Mona Lisa. So the Mona Lisa, okay, is compositionally perfect. The Mona Lisa is amazing because it was like the Kim Kardashian of paintings. It was a, a long forgotten small painting that took four years um, you know, and it was kind of like one of these throwaway paintings, but then it was in the Louvre. And then this, these group, they decided they were like, okay, we're going to steal this thing and replace it with a Fugazi, right? So they had this guy who was working there as a janitor steal it. But they didn't replace it before they found out it was stolen. It was being hidden like three blocks away in this guy's closet. Really? But what made it famous was this was the advent of international news. So the Mona Lisa was like the first Kardashian. Everybody in the world is reading about it. So it became the world's most famous painting by the same way people become famous. It's wow. just, it was all in the press. 
So it was the first like mass media event that was global that made a piece of art that valuable. So really like the value in the Mona Lisa isn't just the painting, it's the story and the frenzy that it caught, it, it created around the world. So when I did it, you know, the neon version, that makes me feel, you know, that it's transformative and transformative is what you need to work to be to call your, your own intellectual property, which loosely defined by Jasper Johns is take something, do something to it, do something else to it. So as long as it hits that three point criteria, you're good to go. Um, and I did that. And so, you know, finishing the Mona Lisa, it was it wasn't a commission. I did it, it sold right away to my very dear friends who loved it. Well, Borbe, where should we go to follow you and all the cool projects you are up to? So, yes, I would say probably um, Instagram is the best social media wise, B-O-R-B-A-Y on Instagram. Uh, the best place to reach me is just my website, which is B-O-R-B-A-Y dot com. And if anyone wants to contact me personally, just Jason at Borbay dot com. Jason, earlier you you talked about the Mormon Row, the barn at the Mormon Row. And for those who have not visited the area of the Grand Tetons, I, I invite everyone to uh, Google that. And you'll see. You've seen the image before. You've seen it. And that's what we're talking about. But tell us a little bit more about what makes that that part of the world so special, the Mormon, the barn at the Mormon Row. They they call Jackson Hole the last of the old west. You know, now we it, it's it's changing from that, but there's a lot of great preservation. And the Mormon Row Barn is you go out and you're standing there, and it's this beautiful barn, and it's been very well preserved, but it feels very rustic. And you see the just the expanse of the Tetons, and it lets you step back into time and consider, you know, a time before indoor heating, indoor plumbing, and these these pioneers, these early settlers who were just braving these brutal winters, you know, to create a life for themselves in this beautiful place. And it's just, you know, preserving our history is so important and going out there to see that is just one of those amazing moments. So, you know, I would say 100%, if you're, if you're here, go check it out. You know, Jenny Lake's great, all these other places, but the Mormon Row Barn is really something special. And the Jackson, Wyoming area is special too. I was reading a bit about its history, along with what you just said, you know, Jackson Hole is called a hole because there it is a hole in between all these mountains. Very, very difficult to get to. And so the people that were here were very, very hardy. They were oh, they yeah. were tough. But or and also there are a lot of bachelors and also a lot of people running from the law. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of rich history in this Jackson way and the all the all the trading and the trapping and with the Native Americans. And it's a fascinating history. And so if you're a history buff, do yourself a favor, dig into the Jackson, Wyoming area, and then come out to visit and think twice before you live in Victor, Idaho, because we, uh, only if you're well-behaved, that's what I'm thinking. There's very few places that I've been in the world that took my breath away and continue to do so in this area as one. Very cool. Well, I, it's, uh, it's great to call you a neighbor, sir. And I appreciate you being on this uh, podcast with me before we go. Uh, every guest I ask, what is your I dare you challenge for all of us? So Borbay, what do you think? What is the one thing we should do or try in order to help us live a better life? Okay. Uh, I will give the advice that I ended up taking myself. So I would dare you to think about what you do when you're homesick from work. Because most people, you know, you're homesick from work and you kind of say like, wow, I kind of have this free time. I don't feel great. But then you do something. When I was sick from work in my corporate jobs, I would paint. I would paint and I'd watch TV and movies and listen to music and paint. And then I realized at some point that's what I want to do. 
So I dare you to think about what you do when you have all the time in the world and then find a way to turn that into your profession. Great advice. And that's going to get a lot of people thinking. Well done. Corbet, it's really fun having you on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy, and I'm sure you're painting here later today, but it's really great just getting your insights on not only art, but also business and getting out of your comfort zone and really cool perspectives. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Darren. I appreciate it. Okay, that was Jason Borbe. I hope you enjoyed getting to know him. What was your biggest takeaway? A lot there around creativity and business and putting in the work and seizing opportunities, saying yes to things, finding a mentor, being a mentor. What's the one thing you're going to take away from this conversation? For me, one of my biggest takeaways is about mentorship, the power that we have to mentor others. And think about it right now. In your circle of friends, in your network, who are the individuals you're aware of that you think have something really special going on, but they may not be aware of it? When's the last time you told them that? So I'm going to pile on here. My challenge to you is whoever you're thinking of, that one person, reach out to them today. Tell them what you see in them and what you think is possible for them in their lives. Reflect back on you were younger and someone opened a door for you. And for all of us, now it's the time to pay that forward in some really cool ways. That's what I intend to do. How about for you? What's the one thing that you will do with this episode and listen to this interview with Borbe? So now that you've listened to the episode, I invite you to share with others important in your lives and also follow and subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss an episode. That was episode 94. We're getting ready for the next one. We're nearing 100 episodes, everybody. Thanks for being along for the ride. We'll see you out here in Jackson, Wyoming next summer or this winter. You will not regret it. We'll see you next week, everybody, in the I Dare You podcast for episode 95. I'll meet you there.